there is no resurrection without a crucifixion, and there's no crucifixion without sin. Our sins placed Christ on the cross. Our sins are what is wrong with the world. We are what is wrong with the world. And we have to understand this in order to understand the cross. We have to understand that crucifixion was something done by us before we can understand that the crucifixion was something that was done for us. That our rejection of Christ displayed Christ's love for us. And that we are only made right with him when we confess our sinfulness, reject it in heartfelt repentance, and move uh, further up and further in with sanctification and holiness. This reminds us of our need to confess, so let us bow down before our God. My undergraduate studies were at Hillsdale College, and I often describe it as a big party, and not a uh, sinful one of drunkenness and debauchery, but a joyful one with fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. I look back on it fondly, It was a time where um, I was first introduced to the great thinkers of Western civilization, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Dante, Milton, Shakespeare, and so on. Uh, It was like going to a party in the sense that it was just, it was this raucous event uh, with all of these great men that I was being introduced to, but it was just being introduced to them briefly. It was like getting their names and a quick rundown of their life and thoughts while shouting in each other's ears over blasting music. But once college ended, I was able to sit down with them. This is like, it's like the party ended, and after, uh, after the party kind of dwindles, I was able to sit down with them and really talk with them, dialogue with them, wrestle with their ideas, uh, really ponder what they were saying, And this was my time after college. Like I said, while I was in the Marine Corps, I began to follow these interests which were uh, sparked in college. And uh, among them, it was was varying, uh, but it was particularly great literature and and then also philosophy. I was a political economics major, so I I really had a focus on politics, uh, economics, and history. And I didn't get a lot of philosophy or a lot of literature. I got some. I got enough uh, to whet my appetite and to really pursue it a whole lot more on my own afterwards. And uh, through this, particularly the study of of philosophy, um, I became interested in Christian apologetics or the intersection of faith and reason. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, famously asks, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And so I began uh, listening to a lot of Christian apologists and debates and so on. Um, And uh, during this time, I made a trip out to Charlottesville, North Carolina, to an apologetics conference. And uh, Gary Habermas was there. And I I didn't know who he was at the time, um, but he gave a talk on the resurrection, which is basically his thing. And uh, later... um, I, I discovered this uh, just you know through YouTube and, and things like this, um, and his presentation it's just it's an, it's an apologetic uh, for the historical re- reliability of the resurrection. That was that was his thing, and um, I'll share a bit more of of some of the things that he uh, presented in his talk. But 
uh, it struck me. I really appreciated it, and um, it got me really thinking more about the resurrection. It really helped to supplement my faith and to think more deeply about it. It propelled me along to a better understanding of the resurrection and how central the resurrection is to our faith. Uh, we just read 1 Corinthians 15, and, and Paul clearly says, Paul is, is driving this point home that if the resurrection has not happened, then we are to be pitied most among men that our preaching is in vain. And that really kind of came home to me in, in a profound way, um, in a way which basically made the resurrection central not only to our faith, but to all of history, that this was the, the centerpiece of all of history, and it provided a, a grounding or a foundation for putting everything else into perspective all of philosophy, all of theology, all of our existential despair that comes from uh, philosophy apart from Christ, all of our theodicy, all of the questions that come with the problem of evil, uh, this army of questions that plague minds, the contemplative minds of the past, they're all, in my opinion, quenched in the resurrection. They are all answered. They are all put to rest um, in the resurrection. Everything finds its resolution here. If, if the history of philosophy is a orchestra, it is uh, uh, dissonant, it is chaotic, but then we find resolution during the resurrection. The God-man sacrificing himself and coming back to life again really changes everything it makes us what we are. It makes Christians a people of hope. Uh, and it's not an unfounded hope. It's a hope that is rooted deep in history and reason. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. These are some of the things that Dr. Habermas uh, uh, brings up in his presentation. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Verse 14. And then a little later on, he says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 19. So if the resurrection didn't happen, then we are to be pitied most among men. Our faith doesn't have any substance. It's just another dead religion. It doesn't mean anything. It's just another self-help, false hope with no mechanism for dealing with sin, no mechanism for dealing with the problem of evil and the issues of death and our longing for immortality. But this isn't the case. It did happen, and it happened in history. And all of history uh, is history. This is one of the points that uh, Dr. Habermas makes. You don't have... Uh, Bible history over here, and then secular history over here. It's simply just all history. All of scripture is, is history. And while we believe that this is, that is an inspired uh, recording of history, it nevertheless gives us um, historical accounts of real events. And even uh, non-believers, to varying degrees, will acknowledge this. 
it's very hard to find even atheists, atheist scholars to deny the existence of Jesus. Um, it's, um, you, you have uh, Jewish historians, Jewish Roman historians like uh, Josephus, acknowledging that Jesus actually exists, or even rabbis a few hundred years later acknowledging and, and writing terrible things about him, um, but acknowledging that he nonetheless existed in history. <clears throat> now, what are the criteria used for understanding history? Uh, what, what do historians look for when uh, trying to verify the existence of people or certain events? Well, it's, it's twofold. They look for early sources and they look for eyewitness accounts. These are the best criteria for ancient history. Um, and this is what we have in Scripture. It is, it is an overabundance of both of these things. And so let's talk with the earliest, about the earliest sources. The earliest biographical accounts of Jesus are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We may not think of them as biographies necessarily that's what they are it's a biography of Jesus's life it describes what he did and uh, it, they are secondhand accounts um, and they are all written I would argue within 40 years of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection most uh, scholarship places this a little bit longer uh, within about 70 years some of, I believe, uh, actually, I'm not really sure about the Gospels, but I, I think that they date Revelation uh, in, in, uh, in the 90s. And this comes from a, a reference uh, of an early church father, which is kind of an obscure reference and can be interpreted uh, different, different ways. But anyway, most scholarship places a lot of these things later than I would. And the reason why I believe that it's all within 40 years is because I believe the entire New Testament canon was written before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. So if you have Christ crucified at A.D. 30, which most people agree on, you have 40 years until the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe the entire canon, because the internal evidence of the New Testament um, doesn't indicate that the temple or Jerusalem has been destroyed. Everything actually in the New Testament indicates that it's about ready to happen because there was supernatural insight into it about ready to happen, um, but it doesn't indicate that it already had happened. So I believe it was written before AD 70. Within 40 years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have um, uh, biographical accounts of his life within 40 years. And this may not seem very impressive to us because we live in an age where everything is immediately documented uh, by everyone with a smartphone. Um, but when we compare it to the evidence that we have for literally every other person and event in the ancient world, uh, it starts to become apparent how impressive this really is. So let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the earliest sources that we have for other historical events and figures. 
The earliest biographical accounts uh, for Alexander the Great, for example, they come about 300 years after Alexander died. Those are the earliest. Now, and that's, they're not the best. The best accounts come 425 to 450 years later, and those are written by uh, Arian and Plutarch. Nobody doubts the existence of Alexander or what he did. But uh, um, we, have, we have his bio- biographies written um, over 400 years, uh, the best ones, after he died. And the, these, so those ones I'm, I'm confident about saying. These other ones were listed off by Dr. Habermas, and I wasn't able to fully uh, verify all of this. But according to Dr. Habermas, he, he, he says uh, texts for Buddha appear 600 to 900 years after Buddha died. Uh, texts for Zoroaster, Zoroaster or Zarathustra uh, are about 1,000 years later. Uh, Hindu sources like the Upanishads are 1,800 years later, and the earliest sources for the Bhagavad Gita are 4,200 years later. So um, if you compare that, if you compare these to uh, within 40 years uh, of Christ's life, it becomes uh, apparent how, how much earlier we have um, accounts than, than the rest of antiquity. They're not so bad. They're not so bad after all. One, one might even say that this, is extra, that this extraordinary event meets the extraordinary evidence criterion that skeptics always demand. Well, extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. This is the, a mantra by the, the new atheists, the Richard Dawkins of the world. Well, this is, this is quite extraordinary. And it's... It's not that we need to meet that criterion, uh, but God has graciously given us an overabundance of evidence confirming the veracity of what we already know through regeneration and faith. Now, something else to consider about the the New Testament scriptures. Uh, We don't have any of the autographs around today. We have none of the original um, copies of the Gospels or any of Paul's letters. All the originals are gone. What exists today are copies, and those copies are what's called extant manuscripts. They're they're extant. We still have them around today. So uh, when they were actually written, we do not have those. In the earliest extant manuscripts we have, date to the 2nd and 3rd centuries and following. I think the earliest we have is a, I believe it's a fragment from John, um, and I believe that it's about, it's the early 2nd century. Um, So these are, the earliest we have are are within 100 years of Jesus' resurrection, which is still pretty good. Uh, especially if we compare it to, say, the earliest works of Plato, Plato's Tetralogies, the earliest extant manuscripts we have uh, are from the 900s AD. Now, Plato is uh, 
uh, about 1,300 years before that. So the earliest extant manuscripts we have for Plato in, in his writings uh, are 1,300 years later compared to Christ, which is within 100 years. Or consider what we have from Aristotle, his, his disciple, uh, or Alexander the Great's teacher. The earliest extant manuscript we have from him uh, comes from the 1100s AD. So that's 1,400 years later. Uh, so, and this is the case with a lot of ancient um, writings. Many of them come from the Middle Ages or the late Middle Ages. Those are the earliest writings that we have from them, from the ancient world. And we compare that to what we have for the New Testament, which is, which is second and third century. Those are the earliest ones that we have. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, but it, it's all, it should also be said that uh, depending on the, the manuscript tradition, it, as you get earlier, um, the New Testament uh, manuscripts, as you get earlier, you, you get less of them. And as you get later, you get more. So particularly at about the same time, in about the 900s, uh, the Middle Ages and later, uh, particularly the majority textual tradition as opposed to the minority textual tradition, you have, you have an explosion. That's where, that's where most of our manuscripts uh, really um, come from if, we're, if you're looking at the volume of them. It's, uh, if you were to, to chart it out on a graph or, or sketch it out visually, it would be, uh, it's kind of like a tree. It's very, it'd be very skinny at the bottom if the, if the earlier dates are at the bottom. And then as the dates um, uh, get more contemporary, it starts to spread out a little more, particularly in the Middle Ages and the late Middle Ages. <clears throat> but we, it is, uh, there is a huge contrast here between the, the gaps And another one more consideration with the extant manuscripts is how many of them that we actually have, how many actually exist. And with, um, with Aristotle, with his works, uh, and these, these could be wrong. And if I am wrong about any of these, I'd, I'd, be, happy for, I'd be happy to hear from anybody. Um, feel free to talk to me afterwards or email me. Um, but the... Uh, the number of copies that we have for Aristotle's works are around 49. The number of copies that, that we have from Plato, uh, it used to be 7, but now it's 210. Um, you'll frequently see 7 in apologetic uh, arguments, but it's actually it's, it's increased significantly up to 210. And with the New Testament, we have over 5,000 around 5,500. So even then, there's this huge disparity between just the number of extant manuscripts that we have. And they're all uh, relatively the same. You have very minimal copyist error. There is some, but it's negligible. I think I've heard it's, it's less than 1%. Um, so that's another thing to consider. So those are early biographical sources. Now what about eyewitnesses? Remember we said the two criteria were early sources and eyewitnesses. 
So we just talked about the early sources. What about eyewitnesses? And uh, you, you may think, well, eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses uh, can be problematic. And that's true. They can be. Eyewitnesses can lie. They can make mistakes in what they recall. They can simply be wrong. They, they're not infallible. But the question is, well, what's the alternative? We can just simply dispense with all of ancient history, or we can take these eyewitnesses uh, for, their, for what, they, what they have reported. And that's the way that we determine truth in a court of law now. Eyewitnesses are what prosecutors need to prosecute, to come to the truth of a verdict. Eyewitnesses can, uh, or even defense attorneys, eyewitnesses, uh, everybody is looking for eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses are uh, significant in trial. Even in the Mosaic dispensation, there needed to be two or three eyewitnesses in order to punish someone with death. So eyewitnesses are important, uh, and uh, there were many eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb and to Jesus' resurrected body. One of those was Paul. Paul is writing about uh, 55 AD, 25 years after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I gave you what I was given, in verse 3. Well, where and from whom did Paul get this material? What, how, did he, how did he get this gospel? Well, he got it from Jesus. He got it uh, about five years after the crucifixion. He got it from the risen Christ. And um, although this is a risen Christ who had already ascended into heaven, um, it's still an eyewitness account of, of the risen Christ. Paul's uh, conversion is about um, plus two or three years after the crucifixion resurrection. Acts 9 is about two or three years after Acts 1. And then, uh, so you have the conversion about two or three years later. Then Paul waits three years in Damascus. And then he goes up to Jerusalem. In Galatians 1, we're told that he goes up to Jerusalem. Um, and when he's in Jerusalem, he speaks with Peter and James, uh, the brother of Jesus, for 15 days. Galatians 1.28 um, talks about this. And when uh, he says that he... He saw Peter. It's usually just, I visited Peter or I saw Peter. Uh, the word, that, the, that's a fine translation, but it's the, it's the etymological root for what we use for the term history. It's the Greek word, uh, historasi. And uh, it means uh, to visit with the purpose of obtaining information, uh, to learn by inquiry. Um, this is uh, like Herodotus's, Herodotus's, often called the father of history, and that's what his great work is called, uh, the histories. So, so Paul goes up to historasi with Peter to uh, invest, to learn by inquiry, the purpose of obtaining information, and um, to check that what he had received was the same uh, message that Peter and the apostles had um, Received And it was. And 14 years later, after this initial checking, 
he goes back again, 14 years later, he goes back to Jerusalem to double check that they were on the same page. Uh, it says James, um, James, John, Peter, Barnabas, and Titus were there. This is in Galatians, this is the end of Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2. Um, and in verse 6, Galatians 2, 6, it says that they added nothing to me. Um, and in verse 9, it says, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So you have this, this corresponding message to both of them. To all, all of these eyewitnesses are coming together and saying, we've, we've seen the same thing, we've received the same message. 1 Corinthians 15, 11, uh, Paul makes reference to this. He says, whether it was the other apostles or myself, we preached the same message. So Paul's an eyewitness. Peter, James, and John are also eyewitnesses. The rest of the 12, and uh, even as much as 500 others in 1 Corinthians 15, many, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians, were all eyewitnesses. So we have, we have over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And when Paul is writing, uh, some of them are still alive, and we don't have any extant uh, material denying that this is, this is what happened. Additionally, the, the very first eyewitnesses were women. And this is another point that's, that's brought up uh, quite a bit in apologetic circles. Um, because women were not considered reliable witnesses in the ancient world. Josephus, as we mentioned earlier, the Jewish Roman historian, he says this in his Antiquities of the Jews. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. Which is funny because the, this, is, this is what the Sadducees and Pharisees were doing with, with Christ. Um, but uh, the Talmud says, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. So the testimony of women doesn't carry a whole lot of weight uh, in the ancient world. But in the gospel accounts, it is all women who first see uh, the risen Christ. They first discover the temple. John 20 uh, says Mary Magdalene discovers the tomb. Matthew 28, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary discover the tomb. Mark 16, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome discover the empty tomb. Luke 24 says it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and other women. And uh, this opens up questions about harmonization. And uh, I, I, we're not going to get into that here. Um, but there's plenty of resources out there that harmonize the 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 uh, gospel accounts, but I think the short answer is basically um, some of the gospel accounts just don't mention everybody who was there. Um, by not mentioning them doesn't mean that they were not there. I think that's really the best way to harmonize uh, all of these accounts. And even in the accounts, the men don't believe the women. Luke 24, 11 says... And their words seemed to them like idle tales, 
and they did not believe them. And Jesus tells the women to go and tell the men, and they don't believe them. Um, when, I, when I preach and talk to students on campus, I, I have this happen almost every time I go up there. Uh, people just yell as they're passing by uh, that Jesus didn't exist, or it's just from a book, or something to the effect of these are just made-up stories. And if somebody is making up, and that this, this is not something that's taken seriously by even non-believing scholars, but uh, if somebody were to make up this story, if it were, if it were to be fabricated, uh, and actually I, actually, I just read something um, where it, it, was so, it was something like 20% of adults, or something like that, it was a significant number, believed that Jesus didn't even exist in history. So, so we really have to kind of get to basic kind of the, these basic kinds of understandings of how scholarship works. And um, I mean, it's not necessary. These evidential arguments are not necessary, but they are good. And um, but my point is that if these guys were to make up these accounts, uh, it wouldn't make sense to place women as these eyewitnesses, particularly the very first ones. Um, and you might say, well, it doesn't matter because there were, there were men there to verify what they had said. Well, that's true. But if you're making it up, you don't want anything in there for your skeptical adversaries to call you out on and to place the most unreliable group of people in there as the very first eyewitnesses is highly unlikely. And, uh, and so, and so there they are. There, there are these highly unlikely witnesses in fabricated accounts being there, which lends itself, once again, another aspect of the validity, the evidential aspects of these become even more um, overabundant. And one particular appearance of... Uh, the Lord to uh, a woman is, is uh, to Mary Magdalene. She features prominently in these accounts. And um, the one that is in John is, I really like it because it's filled with a lot of meaning. Um, it's, just, it's just rich. It's soaking in um, go- the gospel story. All of scripture really is potently represented here. And uh, it's in John 20. Mary Magdalene is, she's weeping before the empty tomb and she peers into the tomb and she sees two angels standing, uh, standing there. And one is at the head of where Jesus was laying and the other at his feet. And this is remarkable because what this, is, what this symbolizes is the fulfillment of the ceremonial sacrifices which took place uh, in the most holy place of the temple. Um, on uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, you have the mercy seat, and the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, had, it had two cherubims strafing it uh, on either side. And so, um, just like the table in the tomb with uh, the two angels on either side of it, you have this Ark of the Covenant representation um, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, what do you have? 
You have the two tablets with the word, the law. You have the manna from their time in the desert. And you have Aaron's rod. Um, and so, so the ark represents Christ. The ark is, um, the ark has the word and Christ is the word. Christ is the law made flesh. Christ is also the bread from heaven. He is our manna. He nourishes and feeds us. And Christ is also uh, the rod of Aaron. He has authority and he disciplines the ones that he loves. And what happens here? Well, once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would sprinkle blood from the sacrifice on the mercy seat for what? For the forgiveness of sins. And that is what we see here in the empty tomb with these two angels. The empty tomb is a kind of holy of holies where the blood of the perfect sacrifice was sprinkled for true Israel. Uh, all those who believe in the Messiah, it was, it was sprinkled for us. And this is what Mary Magdalene peers in. This is what she sees. It's also remarkable because when uh, Jesus appears to Mary... He's resurrected uh, because he understood the deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis would say. Um, he understood that uh, uh, his sacrifice uh, would, um, uh, that he would be resurrected by the spirit of holiness. That these things were ordained before the foundations of uh, the world. And Hebrews 12.2 says that he endured the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. He understood the deeper magic. He understood the power of God. He understood these things that the, I believe Paul elsewhere says that if the rulers understood what they were doing at the time, they would not have crucified him. But they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand the deeper magic. But here, Jesus understood it. So he's standing before Mary. He's standing before her as what? As a gardener. And she, she, perceives, she perceives him as a gardener. That's who she thought he was. But this is intentional. This is, this is meant, he's meant to be perceived this way. Because what's happening here is a new Garden of Eden. This is a new world. We have entered into a, a new period of time. This is a new creation. We have entered into a... Uh, uh, a new heavens and a new earth. And this is the new Adam. He is the new gardener. And Mary is the symbolic new Eve at this point. Eve being separated from... Uh, Eve, uh, Eve being in good uh, standing with God in the garden, but then being deceived and being separated from God uh, and cast out is reversed here with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is a woman who once had seven demons, has been cleansed of that, and has been restored and brought near to God. Uh, it is a reversal of what happens with Eve. So she represents Eve. She represents the church. She represents the elect. The transformation of this demon-possessed whore to a restored woman made pure by the righteousness of her Lord. 
This is what the church is. The church is filled. The church is represented by her in this. The church is sinful and she is restored and she is made pure. Only only Christ can do this supernatural transformation. So history begins in the garden with a fall and then the center of history is remade in a garden with a resurrection. The resurrection of the second Adam the second Adam creating the world. The second Adam who protected his, uh, protected his, women, his woman. Who crushed the head of the serpent by sacrificing himself. Rather than trying to protect himself and not intervening in the serpent's deception. And thereby sacrificing all of humanity. That is what the first Adam did. That's what happened in the first garden. But in this new garden, the second Adam has reversed the curse of the fall. The second Adam has restored humanity. The second Adam has brought us into a new heavens and a new earth. The second Adam shows, uh, shows us that death no longer has the final say. That the curse we had in the first Adam of returning to dust does not remain in place forever. But that our bodies will be resurrected into eternal life in Christ. By Adam, death entered into all the world. And by Jesus, life enters into all of the world. Into all of those who believe him. Jesus says in John 14, Because I live, you will live also. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And even though, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> John 11 talking to uh, Martha. Yes, we do believe this. Yes and amen a thousand times. We believe. Jesus says to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus responds, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that is us. That is you and I. We have not seen, yet we have believed. And we are blessed all the more for it. Let's pray. <clears throat> we celebrate our risen Lord every, every Lord's Day, but especially today. And there is no risen Lord without a crucified Lord. And this supper specifically is a memorial to God of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who was crucified during Passover week, where a lamb was sacrificed and eaten by the entire family, with the blood of the lamb over the doorway of each home, commemorating this in Egypt. The blood of the lamb signified God's protection of his people, that God's minister of death would not take them, but would pass over them. And similarly, we are covered in the blood of the Lamb of God. We show this meal as a memorial to God so that death will pass over us when the day of judgment comes on all men, when all the world will be treated like Egypt. When we are resurrected, we will be the ones who have eaten the flesh and who have drank the blood of the Lamb. And so we are the ones who have uh, kept the Passover meal in the Eucharist meal. Paul tells us, this specifically, he says, keep the Passover meal when he says, for indeed, this is in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, 
not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. The charge is this. Live as people of the resurrection, people of hope, of joy, of life. We know that death has been defeated. We know that our sin cannot be held against us because it was held against Christ and crucified with him. And so was our old man. And we are new creations, new creatures, because Christ has made all things new. He has remade the world and remade humanity, remade us. And that, and that, uh, is, that bursting at the seams of life ought to be undeniable to the world. It ought to be attractive and powerful because the Spirit of God, the same Spirit of holiness which raised him from the dead, now lives in us. And this has happened in history, under Pontius Pilate, in the first century, in Jerusalem, and spread to Samaria, then to all of Palestine, throughout the Mediterranean, and the entire Roman world, and then all of Europe, and all of North America, and is gaining momentum in South America, and Africa, and Asia. And the truth of Christ's resurrection, and the good news, marches forward, and the gates of hell will not be able to stop our offensive action. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.